Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. You know, realizing the difference in like Japanese business culture versus American business culture. What's the biggest difference, do you think? There's a lot more focus on what's good for the office, what's the good of the company, um, and putting that first above individual needs and individual well-being. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of No Blackout Dates. My name's Evan. I'm Tim. And Zach Rosenblum is our guest today. He taught English in Japan for two years, and he's going to be talking to us about what it's like to teach English abroad and how to acclimate to a new country when you don't speak the language. Also, while Tim is here for hot takes, he won't be on the interview since he was out last week gallivanting around Chicago going to baseball games or something. But he's back. He's back for hot takes. He's back for news of the day. So you'll get your Tim fix this week. Uh, Melanie, who many of you may remember, is filling in for him on the interview. All right, enough of that. Let's get into hot takes. My hot take for you, Tim, is I was reading a story online recently that said that most hotels, unbeknownst to most people, have intercom systems where the hotel staff can make special announcements if they need to. I have never been aware of this. I've never, I don't think, heard a special announcement being made over an intercom. Have you? Did you know about this? Uh, I did. I wasn't aware that it was so prevalent, but I was in at the uh, the Fairmont Vancouver Airport a few months ago. In the middle of the night, the fire alarm started going off, and it was going off for quite a while to the point where a lot of people, myself included, went out of the room into the hallway to try to figure out what was going on. And they they once I had gone back in, they came on the intercom into, I believe, all the rooms at once to announce that uh, it was an accident, that there wasn't actually a fire, and that they were going to get it off as soon as possible, and nobody needed to come downstairs. Honestly, I, if, having worked at hotels before, if I had, I don't think the hotels I worked at had these things. They were much smaller. But if they did, it would be so useful and so dangerous for hotel staff because, number one, you could prank the shit out of people. It would be so much fun. Number two, if people are late to check out, you could just buzz into them and be like, hey, guys, 10 minutes past checkout. Get your ass downstairs. Be like, oh, breakfast is over. 10 minutes. You got 10 minutes for breakfast. Last call for breakfast. Like, you could, it'd be hilarious. I don't know. You could come up with all kinds of creative ways to fuck with people. Um, I wish I knew about this. Yeah. It, it reminds me, when I was in high school, uh, a couple of my buddies and I were driving around in his truck uh, drinking beer, and we got pulled over by a fake cop. And this cop had uh, like a, a now, he had a megaphone in the car and started like yelling instructions at us to like get out of the car and then like <laughs> put, put our hands in like crazy patterns and stuff. And then we were like standing, he was just like telling us to do all this random stuff. And then he just peeled out and drove away. That's hilarious. I, how have you not told me that before? I don't, I, you know, I hadn't thought about it in quite a while, but it was, it's one of my better stories of, uh, of high school partying. So I, I like usually people that are fake cops. I feel like are trying to hurt people or rob them or something. So that's that's guy just wanted to like he was like super troopers. He was the the, the person was definitely another teenager. Like he was not yeah. an adult, right? And that's I think hilarious. Like after a few seconds, after he had ordered us out of the car, and we're like 
jumping jacks and stuff, I think we were like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, there's no way this is a real cop, you know? Oh, I love that. I feel like it, like there used to be people that were like guys that would cheat on their wives all the time staying at the hotel I used to work at. I would just, <laughs> at like midnight or 1 a.m., I'd just come on the intercom if I had an intercom and just be like, God is watching you guys. God sees all. Or be like, your wife is downstairs. Oh, there's so many funny uses for that intercom. Okay, Evan, my question for you today, at what point do you feel like you got your money's worth out of an airport lounge? When I've consumed uh, more than $300 worth of food, which in the airport, airport prices equivalent is probably like getting three meals from the Hudson News convenience store. Yeah, well, I, you know, I was in the lounge, the United Lounge at O'Hare yesterday, and I had like a small breakfast and a coffee, and I was like, I don't know if this is really worth using my pass. You know what? It's not to me about the amount of food consumed, like monetary value-wise, and whether you're saving that much money and buying airport meals. It's more in the convenience of and comfort. So those are two things that are kind of hard to quantify. So it's like, okay, without a lounge, you have to sit on an uncomfortable airport uh, gate seat for hours and wait for, your, wait for your flight with a bunch of other people. You get no free food. You get no free drinks. The seat's not comfortable. Um, you get no, uh, pri- no bathroom that isn't like a public airport bathroom. That's all stuff that's like tough to kind of quantify. When you're in a lounge, yeah. like, yeah, sure, you, you, get, you get as much food as you want, and I definitely take advantage of that. But you also just get a comfortable, relaxing place to get some peace of mind before your flight or on a layover. And you get to hydrate. You get a water that's free that you don't have to spend like four bucks on. It's more of like a a peace of mind value than a monetary value, which I think is hard to put a price on. I think it's more, yeah. So I think from what you're saying, it comes down to how much time you spent there and what, how, how much you took advantage of that time and the comfort. And like, oh, were you able to sit there and get some work done? You know, was it a, a more enjoyable stay than just sitting at the gate for an hour? Yeah. It's also about Wi Fi. Yeah. Like, for example, if you're abroad, I, uh, in, it, where was I? I was in Saudi Arabia in the Riyadh airport and I just got off of a 12 hour flight. Had did not have access to my phone while in flight, obviously. Usually, you land in an airport, you're like, okay, let me catch up on what I missed. Let me get connected again. In Saudi Arabia, all the airport Wi-Fis require you to have a phone number to register. I didn't have a, a Saudi Arabian phone number, so I couldn't, I couldn't get Wi-Fi. So I'm like, fuck. Like, I wouldn't have had Wi-Fi for... And then I had to board another four-hour flight to my destination. So I basically would have been just without Wi-Fi for like two whole days, which, you know... I know that sounds like first world problems, but when you're in a very unfamiliar destination, you want, if you feel it's, it's culture shock, you feel like you want to have something to keep you grounded, to keep you connected to the familiar. And that for me is Wi-Fi. And I wouldn't have had it if I hadn't found an airport lounge in the Riyadh airport that had its own private Wi-Fi that anyone can connect to. Right. So the lounges a lot of times will be a godsend when you're abroad in these countries that require you to have a phone number, which a lot of them do, especially in the Middle East. And if you don't have one, you're fucked. So I think the lounge is also useful. The, the food in this lounge was terrible. Like the amenities were not great in this lounge, but honestly, it's, it was worth whatever annual fee I pay for my credit card that gets me the lounge access just to have Wi-Fi. 
Yeah, way to go. Priority pass for the win. All right. Well, I think that's it for Hot Takes. So we'll get right into the interview with Zach, and we'll see you on the other side. All right. Zachary Rosenblum lived in Japan for two years teaching English to Japanese students and now works in a very different environment as a math teacher in New York City. Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So to start off, I want to know, where did you teach in Japan and how did you choose to teach there? How did you wind up there in the first place? Sure. So I taught at um, an English school in Toyama Prefecture, which is on the coast of the Sea of Japan, kind of like on the other side of the main island from Tokyo, um, pretty rural area. And I knew coming out of college that I wanted to go into education um, and I wanted to get some kind of formal classroom experience. Up until that point, all my teaching experience had been through teaching and coaching swimming in the summers. Um, I also never had a chance to study abroad um, undergrad just through other commitments I had. And I'd always had a love for Japan. Um, I grew up like watching, you know, Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z and all the the anime shows in the 90s and playing all the Japanese video games. Um, So it always been something I wanted to do. And I figured, you know, I was 22 at the time. That was the time to do it, to travel before I really got locked into something. And it just, all the pieces seemed to fall into place. And now you didn't speak any Japanese when you, sorry, Melanie. No, so I knew, I knew like a few phrases again from like watching anime growing yeah. up, but most of what I learned, I picked up there. And so the first couple months were rough, um, but luckily the entire program and the classroom and everything was all taught in English. So it was, you know, immersion type instruction. Um, so I didn't have to worry about translating things for kids because everything they were learning was through just practicing and using the language um, in context. So you just speak to them in English the whole time. Like they don't speak any English, you don't speak any Japanese, and you're just teaching them in English the entire time. And they just through yeah. aggressive immersion just pick it up. Is that how that works? I've always wondered about that. Yeah. So it was a lot of a lot of repetition, a lot of just the kids picking up on things and repeating things and like me repeating things and gesturing a lot with my hands, using a lot of props and visuals to show them what it meant so that they in their minds would make the link between, you know, what this phrase in English means in Japanese without, and like sometimes they would repeat it in Japanese. It's like, oh, that means this. And I wasn't supposed to like um, affirm that or use any Japanese in class, but some, you know, sometimes I would just to like, let them know they were on the right track with their understanding. Um, but, you know, I probably let Japanese slip maybe once or twice in class, and that was really it. Um, otherwise, everything was in English. Well, how do you get by in everyday life while not speaking the language? Um, very slowly at the, at the start. Um, one of the first things I realized was that like learning the language was going to be picking up on patterns. Um, So I might not have known exactly what people were saying, but like one of the first things I learned was when I was at the convenience store buying like a box lunch and they would ask me in Japanese, do you want me to heat this up? And the first couple of times they'd ask it to me and they'd like point to the microwave. And that was how I figured out, okay, they're asking me this. So if I say yes right now, here's what I'm gonna get. If I say no, here's what I'm gonna get. 
And then like a year after being there, when I actually started sitting down to study, then I was like, oh, now I pick up on all the grammar and the intricacies. And so by understanding all those patterns and just, you know, knowing when to say no and when to say yes, like that's how I learned the language um, and learned to get by. I think that's why that's so much better than like doing Duolingo, which is what I tried to do over the pandemic to learn French. And it's like, I did Same. it for like a 150 day streak. And I still, I, I literally could only have maybe like a two year old level conversation with somebody. And I feel like being immersed for half that time will go so much further. And it's like, you just need that practical exposure on a relentless basis to be able to learn. Definitely. I mean, I studied French in school from like sixth grade to 12th grade. And just from living in Japan for two and a half years, I'd say my, my fluency with the Japanese language is much deeper and much better than my understanding of French. I can not speak any French really anymore. I can like kind of follow along, but my, even having not practiced it, I've been back in the States since uh, 2015 and even having not really formally studied any Japanese, I can say my Japanese is much better than my French. Yeah. Cause the French is an academic understanding rather than a practical understanding. And I think the two are exactly. very different. Like, yeah, I, I studied Spanish for 10 or nine years in high school or middle school, high school, whatever. And people are like, Oh, so you can probably speak, speak a little Spanish. And I'm like, no, I don't speak any Spanish, like none <laughs> right. whatsoever. Um, it, in terms of teaching English and like being an ESL teacher, is it, tougher to teach English in a classroom setting, putting aside the language barrier than people think, because while we are all fluent in English, I wouldn't have a clue how to teach someone else how to speak English. I wouldn't know where to start. Is that something that you have to have a special affinity for or go through a ton of extensive training to learn how to do? They didn't give us a whole lot of training um, because they were kind of trying to just push the English lessons as like a product we were selling sort of, um, you know, get families to sign up for the lessons. But um, what I found was that yes, it was a lot tougher. Um, English does not make a whole lot of sense with its grammar in the way that most other languages have a real consistent like logic to it. And English does not have that. Um, what I actually found was when I started learning Japanese, then I had a better sense for what my students might struggle with, um, as far as the, the grammatical differences between the two languages. Yeah. Because they're coming from, it, it helps for you to see where, what language they're coming from, because they're going to automatically try to find similarities with the language they already know and the language they're learning. So for you to know Japanese would probably make you a much better teacher at helping them learn English. I think so. Um, I mean, one example is like Japanese doesn't have a difference between countable and uncountable objects. So the the way they'd ask like how much versus how many things is this, they use the same word for how much versus how many. And so mm -hmm. whenever our textbooks would cover, you know, the difference of when to say how much and when to ask how many and just that whole concept of countable versus uncountable was really foreign to them because you know, we look at something like water and we automatically, for example, like water is uncountable, but we automatically in English assign a countable like measurement of like, you know, how many cups of water versus how much water. Whereas in Japanese, it would just be the same, whether it's how much water, how many cups of water it would just be the same question. And so like little differences like that were really tough 
and you know some of my students never fully understood it you know but some of them one just through the repeat like you said repetition and like using it um in conversation they were able to pick up on that difference without doing a formal like grammar lesson let's say and what about the writing the did you learn to write and read japanese as well I learned how to read it. Um, my writing is still a work in progress. Um, I can like type it on so I can send text to like my wife or my friends who are Japanese um, on my phone and I can compose emails on a keyboard, but I act like the physical act of writing it by hand is tough because you have to learn like the stroke order for all the, the characters and there's just, there's so many more characters that you're writing versus the English alphabet. But that was actually the first thing I did. Um, was learn how to read. Um, I did it because my, the person who I was replacing, the person who trained me, the last thing he told me was learn how to read um, katakana, which is the Japanese alphabet that's used when they're writing foreign words, because that way I would be able to tell when they're writing English words in Japanese. And so the first month or so, I just spent my lunch breaks, you know, at home, just drilling flashcards and learning how to read. Um, and so by the two month mark, I could read both like two of the three written alphabets in Japanese. Since you mentioned lunch breaks, what do you do in your free time? What's the social world look like for you as an ESL teacher? Are you in a community of other ESL teachers? Do you all hang out? Are you on your own? You got to kind of make friends, figure it out yourself. At the start, um, I was mostly hanging out with most the other teachers, either in my city or um, the company had four schools that were operated in our region, the, the Hokuriku region, like the north, northernish part of Japan. Um, and so between those four schools, there are like eight or nine of us within that company. And then there are a bunch of other companies or people through other ESL programs. And so we, we generally like knew each other also because it's just, there weren't a whole lot of, um, non-Japanese people walking around in Toyama. So if you met somebody the first question you asked was all right so what school do you teach at um that was like how the first couple months would go and then you'd kind of meet like the the local japanese people who either were fluent in english or were comfortable hanging out with foreigners or wanted to learn english and that was where you know a lot of like my japanese friends came from um most of my friends my japanese friends who i keep up with now are actually through uh, my wife, who I met while I was living over there. And it's so, like once we started dating, got to meet her friend group and everything. And was she a teacher as well? Uh, she was. Okay. Uh, she was also fluent in English. So that was that was kind of how I met her. The area that you were teaching in, I meant to ask this in the beginning, what kind, what size city was it? It, it wasn't like a Tokyo-esque city. It was smaller? No. Very small. Um they have a so the specific city I was in is called Takaoka, and they have a sister city relationship with Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, which is a pretty like obscure kind of smaller city, but they're very similar in terms of like size and and population density. So that'll give you a good idea of the uh, you know what it was like in my city. What was the activity that people would do on the weekends? Like, would, would you, could you go skiing? Like, was it near mountains? Like, what would you Yeah, do? so hiking and skiing were big um, on the weekends. Honestly, a lot of it just happened around, like, the local bar scene. Um, a lot of, like, the local Japanese pubs, the izakaya, as they're called. Um, because they, like, 
a lot of the bar masters love having all these foreigners living there and you know on like friday and saturday nights they would just like be packed with people speaking english and um you know in some ways it actually felt like college a little bit in terms of like everyone's bar crawling everyone's meeting that way <laughs> but um there are a lot of festivals also um like lots of different town festivals once or twice a month i'd say um where people just set up stalls lots of street food people would come out dressed in like traditional japanese clothing and you know just generally having a good time um other than that we traveled a lot um japan's pretty easy to traverse by train and so that was another big thing that teachers would do is we just hop on the train and go do a weekend in kyoto or do a weekend in osaka or you know a weekend in tokyo in terms of lifestyle and being able to have the means to travel and go out and drink do, do you I, i've heard different accounts from people who've taught english in different places and i'm sure it varies but do you get paid enough to just live and pretty much just scrape by or can you actually travel take advantage of living in asia and you feel like you have enough expendable income definitely it was enough for where i was at my life you know um admittedly i wasn't really thinking that far into the future as like most of the people in my position were um most people who stay there long term either don't work you know don't stay in that position that i was in or they like move up towards like the head office within the company um but for like you know early 20s just out of college like yeah you, you get enough to get by and enjoy your life um i think traveling is cheaper there are ways to do traveling that's cheaper in japan that's you know cheap but not like super sketchy or like weird like you'll stay at decent safe places um it's not like you know you're spending 80 bucks a night at a hotel in japan versus in new york right you're gonna have a much different um experience in japan i think the first time i traveled i was like really cheap about it. i stayed at um a capsule hotel in tokyo for like three or four nights like those those it's literally just a room for your bed and you to sleep in you know, and you throw your stuff in a locker during the day. What would you say, like, I know as we talk about, you know, travel as a whole, do you feel like if you are looking, you know, when you're 22, if you're looking to travel, that becoming an ESL teacher is a great option for doing so? Or is it something that's more like, can you do it when you're in your 30s and 40s? I think it's definitely better early on. So like in your early 20s, there was one person in my training cohort who was like mid 20s. He'd been teaching in the US for a couple of years and was trying to stay in teaching, but get out of the States. Um, I'd say the older you are when you do it, it just it's harder because it's hard. To, I feel like to take that kind of, you know, leave from what whatever you might have already going on. Um, but I definitely recommend it if you're looking for a way to get overseas and really experience the culture it's definitely a good way to do it we're going to take a short break from the interview for a word from our partners at matador network are you a travel writer filmmaker or an influencer who loves to travel the world for free check out creators.matadornetwork.com and explore one of our many press trips sign up for free that's creators.matadornetwork.com happy travels and now back to the interview in terms of um, 
difficulties that you didn't expect to run into, uh, aside from language barrier stuff, what what did you come up against in Japan that you maybe didn't anticipate? Um, one thing that, like, one of the first things I noticed, ATMs closed in Japan. So, like, when the banks closed, I don't remember the exact hours, but, like, around the time that the banks would close, unless your ATM was, like, that ATM was with your bank or had a direct, like, relationship with your bank, it'd be really hard to get your money um, after, like, I'd say 6 p.m. And so there were, and it's also still a very, at least when I was there in, you know, 2013, it was still a very much a cash-based economy. So there'd be times we'd be out and I would run out of cash and I'd go to an ATM and it would, you know, it'd be closed. I wouldn't be able to access it. And so I'd have to like borrow from someone who was there. Um, that was something I wasn't expecting just because you think about Japan as being super technologically advanced and yet it's this really, you know, heavily cash-based and you can't always access your money. So the, like, the ATMs are in like vestibules that are locked and you can't get into the vestibule or the ATM just shuts down just shuts down. Like it'd be in like a seven 11 and you go and you, you know, put your card in and be like, you know, out of base, like out of business hours or whatever, you know, come back at tomorrow at 7am or whatever. I, I considered teaching English abroad a while ago and I never ended up doing it. Uh, but one of the reasons that was interesting to me, because it was like, it's, it's one of the best ways I felt to do, to have a cultural exchange to really, like we talked about earlier, to immerse yourself in another culture and to, uh, expose someone else to to our culture is that a big part of it for you is the cultural exchange one of the biggest benefits of teaching abroad do you feel like you're exposing them to your culture as much as you're learning about theirs yeah um i think i really enjoyed that part of it um talking about not just like my experience in America, but also like mm -hmm. as a as a Jew, right? There's not a lot of Jewish presence in Japan at all. And so sure, when I would yeah. tell my students like, I actually don't celebrate Christmas. I celebrate this other holiday. Like that was a lot of fun to get to explain that and teach that to other people. Um, but as far as like experiencing the Japanese culture, again, I never studied abroad, but I, can, I can't imagine doing it any other way than I did. Um, because working there, working for a Japanese company, I really like, I was as in it as you can be, so to speak, with the culture, like having to learn business practices and, you know, realizing the difference in like Japanese business culture versus American business culture. Um, What's the biggest difference, do you think? I think there's a lot more, there's a lot more focus on what's good for the office, what's the good of the company, um, and putting that first above individual needs and individual um well-being by the office do you mean like the company bottom line or office culture um so as far as like our specific okay. branch office what's good for our school's numbers and then also like what am i saying about my experience working for this company that's going to reflect not just on our school but the company itself you know because the 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 prevailing like logic is that if the company does well, then the individuals will do well. And so if the group does well, and that's very representative of Japanese culture as a whole, it's a very, it's a group minded mm. culture. And so if you, if you make sure that the group is doing well, then you yourself will do well because you're part of this group that's doing well. Would you say that they 
place a, a lot of importance on work-life balance because that's the number one criticism of of U.S. business culture is that we don't have enough work-life balance. We don't get enough PTO, whatever. And uh, and and then Europe, they especially Scandinavia, they're much more focused on that. In Japan, do they care about work-life balance or are people? Ten years ago, no. Ten years ago, no. Okay. Ten years ago, when I was there, it was it was. Um... I had students who were surprised when I'd tell them that like a lot of adults will take both days of the weekend off from work. Wow. Um, huh. To put it that way. Um, there was a lot of like, it was kind of expected you would come in early or stay late to prep your things. When near the end of my time, the company started trying to push work-life balance more, but it was clear that it was like a very foreign concept to them because they're saying, all right, you have to leave at this time and you can't come in before this time. But then it's like, well, I don't have enough time in my contracted hours to do this stuff, you know? And so I've heard it's getting better. I've heard that um, in the last five years has been, there's starting to be more of a shift um, with some of the bigger companies and the bigger cities in Japan. But I'd say it's, it was, I was surprised at how much time off I was able to take when I came back to the States and started working here. Um, in 2015, having spent my two and a half years in Japan. And what about summer vacations for for the kids? Do they get about as much time as we do or way less? They do. Um, the teachers do not. So okay. they have usually the last two weeks of July and all of August off. Because um, their school years also go. Their school years start in um, May and they end in April. And so it's a different cycle. So the summer is not like the end of the school year. It's kind of, it's a longer break in between the, the trimesters. Oh, okay. Um, but that's still their longest break because I have about six weeks off. Um, they'll come back at the start of, of September, but the teachers are still have to go into school and do like office work, um, whether that's prepping lessons or doing curricular work or things like that. How does that differ, you know, teaching English as a second language versus teaching now in math? So one big difference, um, my class size are much bigger here because I was working, a lot of my classes and my school was, um, kids would come there after school as like a, like a Kumon type cram school type thing. Um, so my largest classes were like 10 to 12 students, whereas, you know, I'm in a New York City um, public charter school right now, I've got around 30 students um, in my class. So that's a big difference. The language difference and the language barrier or lack thereof was a big like adjustment for me because just that, that ability for my students to talk to me directly um, kind of changed the dynamic in the classroom a little bit. Um, as far as the like the other, like the, the adult side of things, you know, I'm able to take time off in the summers here, which I couldn't really do in Japan. Is learning Japanese or learning math harder? For you, it's probably learning Japanese. For me, it'd be learning math. Same. Although it's interesting, like Japanese, the stereotype is that Japanese students are better at math than American students. And a lot of that is because of the way their language is set up. It's very logical. It's very like, there are very few exceptions to gra you know, grammar rules. And so it's very mathematical the way the language works. And so if you're thinking in Japanese, 
it's very similar to thinking mathematically, um, you know, logic and, and rules and things like that. And I feel like when I, when I think of teaching English abroad, I think of an established industry, something that a lot of people here take advantage of as a way to go abroad. But teaching Japanese and other languages to Americans isn't quite as popular or established. While we do have language learning courses here, there's not this huge industry of uh, like the ESL equivalent, but for, you know, JSL, you know, teaching Japanese as a second language here. What do you think of other cultures learning English, but Americans generally not being multilingual? I obviously, in an ideal world, we would all be multilingual. But the fact is that English is much more pervasive abroad than Japanese is here. So the practicality, you know, makes more sense for them to learn English than for us to learn Japanese. But still, there's this disconnect I've always felt in us exporting English and then not importing enough from other places. What do you what do you think about that? I I agree um, pretty much with what you said. I think, you know, there is an inter- it, in American English has become the international standard for business. And so it's. I don't know that I agree with that. And it was interesting, a lot of a lot of my coworkers, you know, some of them were from Canada or some of them were from the UK. And so the differences of like saying pants versus trousers, let's say, or when we're teaching the alphabet, A through Z versus A through Z. And it was one of the first things they told us is our company uses American English as the standard because that's what they're learning in the schools. That's what they need for all the English proficiency tests. I think there is something that's lost though when you when you kind of delegate learning a second language as like an elective or like a nice to have in American cult, um, education. And, you know, you look at how pre- prevalent Spanish is right now in New York City. And, you know, one of the things that my Canadian coworkers asked me was like, oh, so you guys probably have required Spanish, like how we have to learn French in Canada, right? I was like, nope, they they don't. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, we should as a country do more of because it just, it brings cultures and it brings exchange and communication closer together. Um, but then the question is like, what language would it be? Right. And would it in New York where there's a lot, you know, larger of a Spanish speaking population, it might make more sense for everyone to learn Spanish, but that not, might not be the case, you know, somewhere else in the country. Zach, what would you say for someone who is interested in ESL, what would you say is like the one thing you wish you knew going in at 22? I think I wish I had learned more of the language ahead of time. I wish I had really been prepared for like how different things were going to feel at the start, but also know that I didn't have to give up on a lot of the things I was used to doing in the States just because I was in another country. Um, that it might take some extra work and in my case learning enough of the language to be able to communicate but it was still possible and it's still something that could be done great i think that's a good note to close on where can people find you um if you want to be found online or uh, and what are you what are you up to these days besides teaching math i'm actually i'm in starting my second year of grad school um tomorrow oh, <laughs> so wow. my my summer off is not a thing this year All right. Well, thanks again for coming on. This was great. Thanks, Zach. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All 
All right, thanks again to Zach for joining us today, and we're going to get into news of the day. The first article today is, you can now take European walking tours at the scenes of your favorite Netflix shows. So these are basically walking tours around, one of them is around London, uh, to where shows like Anatomy of a Scandal, Bridgerton, Enola Holmes, or shows and movies like Anatomy of a Scandal, Bridgerton, Enola Holmes, The Crown, and Top Boy were filmed. You go to places like Lancaster House, St. James, and the West End. Um, Same thing goes for Paris. You can take a walking tour of where Emily in Paris was filmed, Lupin, and Notre Dame. So basically, if you're fans of those shows and you want to go see the the city they were filmed in, these tours are for you. I don't know. Tim, would you ever do one of these? Uh, Probably not, unless they launched tours where they take you to ski resorts where ski movies have been filmed and show you where everything was done. That's that's the only movie that you would be interested in. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, like, no other never... movies that you're fans of. You're fan, what, like, what's the biggest movie? No, ski movies aside, what's the biggest movie you're a fan of? Forgetting Sarah Marshall. So you wouldn't take a Forgetting Sarah Marshall tour of Hawaii? I mean, I could be into it, yes. You know, if you get to go to the buffet and sit at a table so close to the buffet and, you know, go to the, the luau and and, the, and all the stuff. Basically, you'd just be at the resort the whole time, though. I don't know if you really need a tour. But you wouldn't probably go to Hawaii specifically to take that tour, right? Like, if you were already in Hawaii, you had an afternoon free, you heard about it for getting Sarah Marshall tour, you'd, you'd probably do it. But you're not going to go to Hawaii to do it. No, I would yeah, I would do it if I was there already and I'm sure that my wife or whoever I was with would just make fun of me horrifically. I feel like these tours are catered to people that are going to these places specifically to take the Bridgerton tour of London. Which that's fine for them. That's great. I don't think I would do that unless I was already there, had a free afternoon. Screw it. I'm a fan. Let's take the tour. Well, I mean, here's when I could see it being useful. When I was in uh Ireland we went to you know some of the sites from Game of Thrones, right? Mm-hmm. Like we went to that that the driveway where the trees are over the the road or whatever. But and it, it could be useful to have a tour take you to those places. So I can see if you're if it's a show that's really 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 popular and mainstream, it could be worth it. Yeah, no, and and it's funny because I I think I'll be motivated a lot by shows and movies set in really cool places to go visit that place. But do I really want to take a tour thematically designed around that show once I'm in the place? Not really. Like, I think like most people, I really want to go to Bruges after watching In Bruges. Love the movie. Like, this place is beautiful. I'm going to go there. And that was one of the first places in Europe I went. But would I once there want to take like an In Bruges cinematic tour of the city? Probably not. So I think that's where the line is for me. Our second article today uh, from Matador, Susie Dundas, scientists taught a robot to hike, and here's what that could mean for the future of travel. You know, it's interesting. You think a robot walking along the trail, like, what's the big deal? I initially thought that, but then once I read the article, you you realize there actually could be a lot of things that could come into play for tourists here. A, uh, a hiking robot could make rescues in the backcountry much faster and much safer. It could also... uh, 
complete work on trails in a way that is faster and safer than having humans do it. So there's a lot of safety implications that I think was the impetus behind designing this robot, not just to see this freaky four-legged dog-looking robot wandering through the woods. It could also fly me down from the peak so I don't have to hike down once I've gotten all the way up to the summit, right? Yeah, I don't know if it can do that, but it should do that. That's version two. Yeah, it's like, cool, you made it to the summit. Awesome, good job for you. You hiked. Now you don't have to do the like arduous work of going all the way back down the mountain with no new views. Like You're just going to helicopter you down. Little dog-like robot grabs you and just flies you down. Right, right. Well, the animal is called Animal, A-N-Y-M-A-L. Uh, and among other productions. It's like tasks, Animal. Yeah. It's like right. Animal, Tim. Animal. Oh, okay. Well, beyond... Uh, beyond- <laughs> rescues it could also you know guide people on tours like evan it could just get them off the mountain as fast as possible i I, so when i first read this uh, i saw like a hiking robot i thought it was like a robot that is designed to hike like literally just like it hikes up and down doesn't really do anything else just hikes for the hell of it which now that i think about it doesn't make any sense but i would love that if someone could like install some kind of bionic leg that's just like an attachable thing to my body whenever I want to go on a hike. And it basically helps. It's like an e-bike. It assists me with hiking. So I don't have to actually do any physical work to hike, right? So it's like you attach the, the robot hiker to my legs. It does all the lift, the heavy lifting for me. Like it hikes. I just kind of sit back, enjoy the views. Before I know it, I'm up at the top. I haven't done any work. I'm not sweaty. I'm not tired. I can just fully enjoy my enjoy nature and the view at the top. And it's great. I don't have to do any work. There you go. You know, because it's a robot, it can be programmed to do whatever you want. That's not to toot my own horn, but that's genius. Because then you get all the benefits of hiking except exercise without having to do any of the, you know, the, the grunt work. I think you call it lazy mall. Lazy mall. Lazy, lazy hike. Lazy, lazy legs. I like that. Lazy legs. Okay, Lazy Legs Hiker 2000 for all your hiking needs. Yeah, there you go. That's the best one. We'll work on that, and that's all we got for today. Thanks for listening to No Black Updates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm Flow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halkey, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, the Manador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you.